Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host, Catherine Schmidt, is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the surface, diving deep into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Katherine Schmidt, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, we are talking about birds. Maine's diverse land and seascapes are home to hundreds of species of birds, from forest songbirds to wading birds along the shore to seabirds that nest on offshore islands. Our guests in the studio today are Doug Hitchcock from Maine Audubon and Chris Bartlett from Maine Sea Grant and University of Maine Cooperative Extension. A bit later in the program, Jeff Wells of the Boreal Songbird Initiative will join us by phone. Your bird-related questions and comments are welcome. Um, So, Doug and Chris, if you could just tell us a little more about um, your bird-related work and projects. Yeah, uh, this is Doug Hitchcock. Um, So I'm the staff naturalist at Maine Audubon. Uh, One of the best titles I think I could have asked for. It basically uh, allows me to connect people with nature anyways I see fit. So it's everything from uh, leading bird walks uh, most mornings to doing uh, more extensive trips around the state, and then also uh, being a public resource for people to call and ask questions um, of Maine Audubon. So if there are birds at their feeders that they need identified or they're curious how to get a groundhog out of their garden, uh, that's what I'm there for. And where are you based? In Falmouth. Okay, great. But you work statewide. Yeah, Um Maine Audubon is a statewide organization. We've got uh, our headquarters in Falmouth at Gilsland Farm and also a center at uh, Fields Pond just outside of Bangor. Uh, so I'll often go back and forth between those doing programming. Um, but really anywhere that uh, people want to learn about birds. This past month I've been everywhere from Presque Isle to uh, almost Eastport. I guess I was in Trescott. Um uh, down to York County. I'll be up in Bethel next uh, Friday evening. So definitely statewide. And Chris, I think people might be wondering why somebody from Sea Grant is here talking about birds. So maybe you can share a little bit about your work. Yeah, gladly. Well, thank you for inviting me, Catherine. And good morning, Doug, and everyone else. Uh, so I'm Chris Bartlett. I work for Maine Sea Grant University of Maine Cooperative Extension. As Catherine said, my office is in Eastport. Much of my work focuses on um, research and education around our commercial marine fisheries and aquaculture. 
For bird-related work, I've been conducting uh, monitoring surveys of seabirds related to marine uh, in industrial efforts. And, uh, and so that includes uh, ocean renewable uh, energy. We've been doing... Thank you very much. Just switching microphones here. Um, we, have, we have tidal power uh, installments going on in the Copsquick Bay area, and I've been uh, conducting seabird monitoring efforts. So we, we want to study the seabirds before any installations take place to see what the populations are like, and then we want to study the populations after the installations are put in. I've also done similar monitoring surveys uh, related to uh, aquaculture leasing for salmon farms. And uh, I also uh, enjoy leading tours, guiding tours for the public, uh, joining folks like Doug to go out on boats in uh, the Down East area to uh, identify and learn about seabirds. And uh, I'm a self-professed uh, avid birder. So <laughs> I, I'm really interested in everything to do with birds in our area. Well, I think we'll get into the nerdy bird stuff a little bit um, later. But first, I was just kind of, I think the listeners would benefit from just like, why even talk about birds in Maine? What makes Maine a special place for birds? And why are the birds that we have special? Um, Kind of what are the unique things or, or really standout things with birds in Maine? I like to think uh, just the diversity that Maine has, um, kind of a combination of the birds that are coming here to breed, um, some of what are often called the gems of the North American forest, the uh, brightly colored warblers, there's a number of tanagers, vireos, um, all sorts of these these neotropic migrants that are coming to Maine um, specifically to breed. And a lot of those will be breeding across the boreal forest, which I'm sure Jeff will uh, be talking about later. Um, But Maine is fairly unique in the U.S. for the amount of boreal habitat that we have. So um, it's just a, a, you could think of it as the nursery for a lot of those birds. So what does neotropical mean? um, So the the new world tropics so uh getting down into uh central northern part of south america so our birds that are going there um migrating there for the winter um basically because they uh can't survive maine's winter when there's um either cold climates they're not finding the food sources that they need um so they'll come here when it's the uh migrating in the spring, arriving here in the summer so that basically all the things that bug us, the all the insects that we have flying around are vital food for these birds. So they're coming here because we have so much food for them. Um, that food is what's going to raise their baby birds. Uh, I always like to say that, you know, people put out bird feeders. It's a great way to a- attract birds to your yard to be able to see them well. But it's that naturally occurring food, those insects, those invertebrates that are on the landscape. That's kind of the important thing. That's why those birds are coming here to breed. Doug's absolutely right. And, and I think it's the diversity of habitats that we have in Maine as well. So we have the, the boreal forests, as Doug mentioned. We have uh, the bold Atlantic coastline. Uh, we also have lots of swamps and bogs and uh, some uh, barrens areas, such as the blueberry barrens that we have here in Hancock and Washington County. So there's the diversity of habitats, so which attracts diversity of birds. So it's 
I like to think of, you know, there's no other place that I know of in New England where I can go out and see an Atlantic puffin and a spruce grass in the same day. It's it's pretty fantastic. Um, and so is that because we sort of have this overlap? I mean, why? It's more than just the habit, right? I mean, the habitat reflects the climate that we have. Um, can you say a little more about the coastal birds and sort of like what's the difference between a seabird and a shorebird? And then, and then because the boreal forest comes all the way to the coast, that's where you're getting some of that overlap, right? That's right, because the, the ocean is actually, you know, cooling the, the uh, habitat. So we, we get uh, spruce forests right along the shore, which is, you know, small bands of boreal forest right along, right along the Bull Coast. So for seabirds, uh, when I say seabirds, talking about uh, groups of birds such as gulls, uh, cormorants, um, the alcids, which include the Atlantic puffins and razorbills and common murres, uh, terns, part of the gulls as well. And they prefer to nest on uh, treeless islands offshore, uh, preferably far enough out so that uh, mammalian predators like minks and otters can't swim out to eat their eggs and young. Uh, that's an issue. Um, though there are some nesting islands right along the shore as well. We have eider ducks and uh, double-crested cormorants and herring gulls, great blackback gulls, nesting right near shore in Eastport, where I live. Um, so, how are Maine birds doing? Probably, uh, it's worth saying that you know, on the the grand scheme, there's a lot of threats to birds right now. Um, whether we look at, at climate change, at habitat loss. Um, the most recent estimates are that outdoor cats are killing between 1.4 and 4 billion birds per year uh, just in North America. That's a really daunting number. So there's uh, a lot of things impacting our birds negatively. Um, you can start looking at subgroups and kind of seeing how some are faring better than others. Um, waterfowls especially doing well with more um, – uh, habitat that's being set aside for them, then you have a bunch of species that benefit because of that. Other birds that also nest in those wetlands. Um, I would say our aerial insectivores are probably the most uh, negatively impacted. Um, you could throw in pesticide use to another thing that's probably impacting them. Um, one thing that's commonly talked about now is there's there's it looks like there's uh, uh, dramatically less insects on the landscape, what people often call the the windshield effect, which was, you know, you used to drive around in the summer and your windshield would be just splattered with bugs. Um, and that doesn't seem to be happening quite as much anymore, which is um, a very, you know, non-scientific uh, way to kind of sample uh, <laughs> how many insects are in the landscape, but it, it definitely seems to be like across the board, a lot of those aerial insectivores, which range from um, tree swallows, which people might even see, you know, in their own backyards, nesting in boxes, um, and some of the uh, more secretive things like uh, whippoorwills, which are just seem to be declining all over the state. That's a, a night bird that people who camp in Maine are probably familiar with their um, it's a it's an absolutely beautiful song unless you're trying to sleep at night. Then, you can uh, play it. If, if you want to bring it up on your phone, I would like to get some <laughs> bird sounds into this program today. So swifts and swallows, right, they eat insects. And so I live in downtown Bangor, and we have swifts, I think chimney swifts. 
And they come out every year in June and all summer long. They're just high overhead. Um, you know, I live in a pretty right downtown and they chitter and chatter and fly overhead. And I love listening to them and watching them. And I just, to me, it seems like I'm just amazed that we still have birds, that they're still around. Um, I was saying the same thing about butterflies. It's just, they're just amazing. And it's just, I'm just I just feel it's sad that I feel so lucky that we have them at all, um, but I'm so grateful for the swifts, and I just wonder, can you t- tell me about swifts a little bit? <laughs> um, well, one interesting thing about seeing them around, uh, especially around cities, um, and I can actually, if people um, are not familiar with the chimney swift, uh they're often likened to uh, – they look like a flying cigar. They're this uh, very tubular, dark body, very long, angular wings. The uh, little chittering noise that they give when they're flying around is very uh, very diagnostic. You'll often hear that just walking around uh, the city. Um, an interesting thing with them is that they're slowly adapting to these – urban or suburban environments by going into things like old chimneys. That's how they get the name. But um, before they had chimneys all over the landscape, they wanted to be nesting in things like old dead trees, like hollowed out trees. So um, uh, eBird, which is a project by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, we'll probably talk about a bit more with the main bird atlas, um, is a citizen science project asking people to report where they're seeing uh, birds really all over the globe. And they released this really um, remarkable, uh, you could think of it as like a heat map. It was uh, it showed the frequency, so basically where the most chimney swifts were being reported across North America. And what it really highlighted, the, the what I'll call the hottest areas, the places where chimney swifts were being reported most frequently, were in all major cities. You could, it basically looked like... Um, if you've seen those maps, uh, what they called like the – I think it was called the black marble, the photo of the world uh, in shadow. So you could just see all the artificial light being produced and, and cities really lit up. And it was remarkable how similar the Chimney Swift map was to that map of you know, the, the night sky um, or the, the land at night. Um, so that's you know an example of – a species that's adapting for that that habitat change that is really not um, not good on the grand scheme, but they're slowly adapting towards it. Well, I also wonder, and uh, we're going to talk to Jeff in a second, um, but just to you know that there's obviously still food for them. So the fact that there are, it makes me feel a little better thinking, well, they're here because there's food, and so. You know, in some sense, insects are good. Even though I'm, I'm glad living in the city with mosquitoes and black flies aren't as bad, but clearly they're eating something up there in the sky. Sure. Well, you have the Penobscot <laughs> River and Kanduska Extreme yeah. right there putting yep. out lots of insects. So, um, All right. On the phone, um, we have Jeff Wells of the Boreal Songbird Initiative. Hello, Jeff. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing very, very well. Um, thanks for joining us today. Um, I was wondering, could you just share a little bit um, more about you and, and your work? Sure. Um, well, the Boreal Songbird Initiative is, is a, a, a small nonprofit based in the U.S., but that works on um, the conservation of the boreal forest of North America, which stretches from interior Alaska all the way across 
Canada, the, the sort of northern coniferous forest, all the way uh, to Newfoundland, about 1.5 billion acres, one of the largest biomes um, on, you know, in, in, in the world and in, uh, in the Americas. And um, it's one of the last places on Earth where there's still forests that have basically been um, untouched by large-scale human industrial development. So, you know, I like to say in the course of human history, human evolution, however you want to put it, um, these are, this is one of these last places that we haven't um, completely changed um, through our, our industrial um, natural resource extraction activities and things like that. And so we have an opportunity to try to decide what the, the fate of that will be and whether we're, we're going to um, treat it the same way we've treated most of the other biomes on Earth. It's a place that supports somewhere between one and three billion birds, b- billion with a B, and um, they're up there right now nesting, and in the fall when they um, start migrating south and most of them leave, because of course it's very cold up there, um, then there'll be something like three to five billion that will be migrating south, and um, that means from about August or July through November, there's 30 to 50 million birds that cross the U.S.-Canada border, and of course um, <clears throat> a huge number of those come right through here, the state of Maine and give us the abundance of migrants that we that we enjoy. So our group works to try to um, support efforts to protect um, the boreal forest and to make people more aware of why it's so valuable for birds and actually for other other things too. Um, are there specific things about about Maine's portion of the boreal forest um, that you're sort of really focused on right now, or that you think people should know? Well, um, you know, Maine is. Uh, critical in, in a couple of different ways, of course, um, for all those migrants as a stopover location. And um, it also does have um, a lot of boreal habitat, especially in coastal regions um, in the, uh, you know, more more easterly um, and in the interior in the north and in Washington County. Um, and so, you know, the efforts that are underway and have been underway now for you know, a few a few decades really to try to find ways, new solutions to protecting um, that forest, or in some cases sustainably managing it, uh, are 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 things that that we support. We we did just have a kind of a a, a very cool connection. Um, we often try to support indigenous communities because in the in Canada they are the leaders of trying to protect land, and in fact are protecting literally millions of acres of land. And um, there's one community up in the Northwest Territories that's uh, got a park called Fideni Neni. They're trying to establish and protect an area that's something like uh, four to eight times the size of Baxter State Park or, I don't know what, you know, sort of 30 or 40 times the size of Acadia National Park. Um, And we just helped arrange with Audubon and um, a bunch of other groups um, to have one of their uh, elders... uh, a woman who was a, a former chief and actually a, the principal of their little local school to come down to the Audubon camp at Hog Island and learn um, some more about birds and um, and the potentials for ecotourism. And so she just did that last week and is back there now, um, you know, teaching more of the community and the young people about birds and, and going to be really sort of a proponent of that. And, you know, that's sort of just a, a, a single example of that kind of connection that we have in ways of, of trying to help and support them up there. 
So that um, I'm glad you brought that up because this is a story that I wanted to um, share with the guests. Um, uh, just first for our listeners, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU, and we're talking with Jeff Wells of the Boreal Songbird Initiative, Chris Bartlett from Maine Sea Grant and University of Maine Cooperative Extension, and Doug Hitchcock from Maine Audubon. We'll be opening the phone lines in about 10 minutes, so you feel free to call us with your questions and comments. Um, so talking about um, indigenous peoples of North America, um, about a month ago, I was visiting with the Passamaquoddy tribe at Peter Dana Point, and there was a group of us, and we were camping and at um, Bear Lodge, which is a new facility um, with beautiful renovated cabins right on a lake um, that the tribe is operating, and some of us were tenting, and it was, this was like May 22nd, and at about four, I slept well, and then at about four in the morning the birds started singing. And it's not even singing. I have never heard so many birds at once. It wasn't like a couple here and there. It it was like thousands of birds, all different songs, like layers of songs. I mean, and it was so loud. And it went on for about maybe only till like 5.30. I was just, it's incredible. I just like, what was I listening? What was I hearing? Yeah, the Don Chorus. Um, the famous Don Chorus. I, I, some of the others may have mo- more to say about that, but I mean, in um, you know, birds, uh, uh, especially in the north, are famous for um, and that first uh, burst uh, of activity after dawn. Um, just all, you know, singing for the ver- various reasons that they they sing to sort of reestablish where their territory is, to make bonds with their uh, mates, or to attract new mates. Um, and they sort of often just do that all at the same time, right before they then probably start to go off and, and feed and maybe have a little bit of a lower song activity after that lull of, of nighttime and trying to make sure that they're they're established. But, you know, every every bird in the whole place just all does that all at once, and it just makes this incredible symphony of, of sound that also can wake you up if you happen to be trying to sleep in the middle of it. I wish I had recorded it because I it's I'm like, did I dream that? Like, did that really happen? I mean, I don't know. Chris or Doug, do you have, do you hear that often? Oh, absolutely, especially now that we're in the nesting season. Um, as Jeff said, that is kind of their uh, uh, procl- proclamation of territory you could uh, think about is um, you could liken it to if, you know, you and your neighbors every morning had to wake up and stand on your porch and, you know, your property would say your <laughs> property if you all yelled at your neighbors and said, you know, this is my property over here, you stay away, like <laughs> – who knows what they're really saying to each other, but it's, you know, it's probably similar to, to that. Um, uh, even some birds will have, um, what's called a dawn song. So, you know, a few hours later in the day, you might hear that bird singing what, what we think of as, as their typical song, but especially some of the fly catchers have these really, um, uh, don't know, I could pull one up fast enough here, but, uh, these really kind of remarkable, songs that they'll sing kind of first thing um yeah that's what this was like it was crazy it was like this crazy cacophony i mean it was beautiful but it was just it was nuts yeah here's um great crested flycatcher a bird that's uh probably in a lot of people's uh backyards it's one of those that you, you tend to hear you hear it a lot more than you see it this is uh, a recording of it what's called its dawn song 
So those nice little interesting kind of uh, burry notes in the beginning where typically if, if you hear one like throughout the day, it, it just does more of this uh, kind of outburst. It sounds like a squeaky toy or something, just these short little like weep, weep. Um, so, you know, not much of a song at all except for just in those that first hour or so of the day. Um, and it's it's amazing. Like you can, you know, stand in one point. I was up in uh, – Monson on Wednesday, um, to, trying to do a little bit of work for the Maine Bird Atlas, like seeing what birds are potentially breeding up there. And just a singing bird during the right time of the year is considered a, a possible breeding record. And um, you could stand in you know one spot and get twenty, almost thirty different bird, different species of birds, you know, just singing within earshot. So. Um, this reminds me, Jeff. I know, I know from following your work that there's all that something similar happens during migration, where you can hear the birds migrating and flying over at night. And I think there's been maps that show it. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of migration period and how you monitor that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, most people don't realize that that the majority of birds actually migrate at night, not during the day. You know, people kind of I think uh, just assume that most birds would migrate during the day, but the truth is it's just a, a minority of species that migrate during the daylight hours or at least so, solely during the daylight hours. Um, most of them migrate at night. And so um, when, when they're migrating at night, they um, make little sounds like that. Um, uh, somebody's... Yeah, playing. sorry. Doug's trying to bring it yeah, up. Yeah, he's playing the Swainson's Thrush um, nocturnal flight call. Yeah, sorry. So that, yeah, that's what you'll hear flying over at night. That's what they sound. That's what one one species sounds like. And and so in migration periods, both for spring and fall, there there are literally tens of millions of birds passing over the U.S. And um, they're sort of I, I sometimes describe them as as you know currents of birds um, uh, because they they have to um, deal with with weather weather patterns, and so they sort of shift where the, those rivers or currents of bird migration um, are flowing at any one time. And there's new work over the last couple of decades with, with radars, weather radars, um, where you can actually see these and, and maps that now have been produced that, um, that show kind of over the entire um, U.S., at least um, kind of on any one night where, where those rivers of, of birds are going to be, be flowing. And, over time, you can learn to identify some of them, like, the, you know, Doug played that one, the other, which sounds like a spring peeper, but if you hear a spring peeper over your head, you know, you know that's not probably a, a frog up there. Um, that's a Swainson's thrush that's migrating over, and there's other um, sounds. Some of them are a little bit more obscure and harder to, to tell, sounding like crickets and things like that, but it's a, kind of a magical experience to go out at night and hear all these calls raining down as hundreds, thousands of birds are, you know, going over your head. And in the fall in Maine, often, um, especially along the coast, you often just can have nights where you just hear, hear just um, you know hundreds and hundreds of them over, over a few hours, and really uh, amazing experience. And so, are those both adults that have already made the migration, and then the new young that were born here? In the fall, yes, that would be the case. Yeah. Um, and so, can you sort of? Um, we talked a little bit about sort of um, threats to birds, but while we're on 
the migratory birds or breeding birds because they're coming here to breed. Are there birds that migrate here just to eat um, in the summer? Yeah, yes. There's a funny, uh, funny thing I've learned to say with birds is there's there's always an exception to the rule. So okay. while while a lot of birds are coming here specifically for breeding, um, there's definitely birds that are as as Jeff said, just using this as like a migratory stopover. It might even be some young birds that are just you know making that migration for the first time, um, and you know aren't going to breed in there first summer. Um, so, so 2018 is um, the International Year of the Bird, um, in part because it's the 100th anniversary of the Migratory Bird um, Treaty Act. I wonder, um, Jeff, we just, you know, have you for another five minutes, um, just wondering if you um, have have thoughts on the importance of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and, and what it's done for birds, and certainly Chris and Doug, if you have thoughts as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's um, kind of, um, I think, sometimes under underappreciated. You know, as, as things often are, hundred, you know, hundred a hundred years after they they first were were put together. But uh, even just the fact that this that the treaty was established, uh, you know, it's was really one of the first and still one of very few um, treaties that deal with a, uh, a resource that migrates across. You know, that moves across um, boundaries. In a really concrete way, and and you know, if the historians uh, out there will re- will recognize that it happened. Um, it was signed in nineteen, the treaty itself in nineteen sixteen, um, and it it was basically worked on and negotiated during um, you know the World War One years um, when, along with you know the war itself, we had these horrible Spanish fever outbreaks, and you know. Maine included, where, you know, tens of thousands of people died, even just, um, you know, as they were getting ready to be sent over to Europe to fight in World War One. you know, so just horrible things happening all over the world and just this horrific war and horrific diseases, and yet, through all that, people were working for something, you know, a really bright, shining light in in, in conservation and, uh, you know, and established this, this law that helped to save so many birds, including many in Maine that were really on the brink, you know, things like eiders, which were, were down to just drastically no, low numbers and, um, and terns and seabirds and all sorts of things. So, yeah, the, the law was, was um, you know, um, the treaty and then the, the ensuing laws in each country to, to um, protect the birds were, were groundbreaking and still are. And, um, and, you know, I guess in today's world where we're seeing all this animosity, you know, I guess sort of emanating from from our federal government to other countries like Canada um, and some efforts to try to undermine that, you know, groundbreaking um, treaty and the laws that followed from it. Um, it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's sort of sad to see after, you know, again, with the shining light for the world and, and protecting um, birds and this, and this shared resource between countries to see it sort of being being shaken a bit and not appreciated as much as it as it should be by at least certain elements of of the government there's still though of course luckily a huge number of people a majority i'm sure who support the you know what what it means um, in in the u.s and canada and other places um thanks jeff i hope you'll um stay on the line with us for another um 
5 to 10 minutes. The phone lines are open. If you have questions, you're listening to Coastal Conversations. We're talking about birds um, in Maine, and we've got some experts here with us. So give us a call at 1-866-625-9378 with your bird questions and comments. Um, we, we do want to talk a little bit about um, the Breeding Bird Atlas, um, this initiative in the state, and then kind of how people can get involved in all of the great opportunities for people, whether you're just starting out um, or learning birds or um, are sort of more deeply involved. So I think, Doug, you're pretty involved in the Maine Bird Atlas. Yeah, so um, the Maine Bird Atlas is a project by the Maine Department in, of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, um, a great example of where uh, quite often they're, you know, put in the um, – they're often known for their work with, like, game species. Um, and this is kind of great proof that they are uh, concerned with all of Maine's wildlife. So it's a great project that is looking to um, – uh, essentially document where birds are breeding in Maine. They want to know what species are in what areas. And what we're asking people to do, um, in order for it to be successful, it's it's going to be uh, a citizen science project. So basically any, anyone who can identify a bird and tell us what behavior it's doing um, can help contribute to this project. Uh, the state's been broken up into a grid of about um, it's, it's four thousand eighty blocks, um, basically uh, three by three miles is each each block. And uh, what we want to know is what birds are breeding in those areas. So I think, as I mentioned earlier, it could be anything from what we would call a possible breeding code, which is just a, a bird singing, um, all the way up to if, if that bird's uh, Maintaining that territory, it's been singing there for seven days. That would be considered a probable breeding code. Or then, if you you know saw a bird either carrying nesting material, carrying food, or you saw you know baby birds, that's a great way to confirm breeding. Um, we have a call from Paul in Belmont. Maybe he's seen a bird. He has a question. Hi, Paul. <laughs> Hi, I'm Paul from Belmont, and uh, I have 110 acres of wildlife refuge called the Wayback Farm. And I've been a bird watcher since I was a little boy. Uh, I can confirm the catbirds come back every year when they go, Wah! my <laughs> spring officially starts. And and there's there's uh, uh, bobolinks and there's barn swallows in the barn and there's um, killdeers and uh, crows and, and hawks. The hawks showed up this spring looking at the chickens. And uh, I have a, uh, a specific question, very... very I'm very aware of the forest and the field that uh, my farm is and how it's a diversity of habitats and <clears throat> the different foods. And, you know, we maintain pastures and fields and commercial woodlots and wild areas that we don't do anything with. And there's a proposal to clear-cut about 20 acres of forest and pave over about 10 acres of field uh, right on the Little River estuary, right adjacent to uh, the Atlantic Ocean and Penobscot Bay. And it occurred to me early this spring that nobody was out there counting the nesting sites, and nobody's been out there actually inventorying the migratory birds that use this uh, estuary and the woods of the fields for shelter. And I, I would like your guests to comment on what uh, 
denaturing 20 acres of woods and 10 acres of fields, what kinds of effects could it have on on both our native songbirds and migratory uh, birds of various kinds? Thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Paul. I'm going to let see if Jeff um, has a comment just while we still have him on the phone. Jeff, the effect of losing 20 acres of woods on the shoreline. Well, yeah, there's there's a whole variety of, of ways that that can can impact um, something, of course, and and it um, you know maybe more importantly um, is is the cumulative effect of lots of that sort of thing happening over an area. Uh, I don't know if you guys were talking about threats earlier, but Maine has been projected to at least the, the sort of southern part of the state. Uh, up to the Penobscot Valley, uh, so the southern Penobscot Valley has been projected to be one of the areas that's going to be losing the most habitat over the next, uh, you know, 30 to 50 years from, from um, increased uh, numbers of uh, houses and, and other sorts of development. And so, you know, that's where you see the, the biggest effect is sort of the cumulative effect of one, you know, one kind of loss of the habitat or degradation of the habitat or fragmentation of the habitat sort of one after another after another. You know, that one spot, you know, you, you could probably calculate the certain number of birds that are dependent on a, the particular habitat there that would be, that will be lost or at least their ability, you know, to have territories there will be lost. Um, so that'll take some segment of the population out that um, they won't be breeding there anymore. Um, and there'll be changes, of course, from, um, you know, outflow of various, um, uh, things into the estuary, you know, changing the surface based on, you know, paving something and all of that. So, you know, they're in theory, um, that's supposed to all be taken into a, into account. I, you know, in most um, schemes of, of development, um, to at least talk about what the issues may be. Um, but it's the the broad cumulative effect of more and more of those things happening. You know, um, which is why, you know, in the world of um, Kind of the, the what most people in in who care about the environment and birds and things like that would find rather boring. But land use planning and um, you know things like smart growth um, initiatives and all of that, you know, which sounds like you know way off from people who are interested in nature. But those are the things that are needed in order to figure out ways to to leave as much land um, in a natural state as possible. Um, you know. It's, it's going to be tough sort of piece by piece by piece to, to kind of deal with uh, with an issue like that, but you need broad-scale plans. And as, as boring as it might be for people interested in nature, that's where the, where the rubber hits the road on um, trying to ensure that you have a sustainable future for the you know, birds and nature in your community. Um, thanks, Jeff. And I really want to thank you for spending some time with us today. Jeff Wells of the Boreal Songbird Initiative. Um, we will put links on the Coastal Conversations web page on the Maine Sea Grant website, um, also available from WERU.org. Um, Doug Hitchcox and Chris Bartlett, um, the caller, Paul, talked about how nobody was out there um, studying this piece of land that's threatened with some development, do you have thoughts on what it sounds like there's an opportunity there um, for people to enter their that data into the bird atlas? So um, would that be an opportunity? Absolutely. So with the main bird atlas, uh, as I mentioned, we're, we're trying to get statewide coverage um, 
in order to do that, we're having to work with a lot of private landowners um, to get access into these places. And uh, the remarkable thing to me, you know, this early, the Atlas just launched this year. We're really only, you know, a month or two into uh, the breeding season. Some birds would start much earlier, but it's it's really ramping up now. And we've already got over 500 volunteers, over um, around 6,300 individual checklists that have been submitted around the state. Um, so there's already a lot of effort pouring in. Uh, the state's been divided up into 31 uh, regions that all have regional coordinators that are volunteers that are trying to help find uh, birders who will access all these areas. So, um, you know, with with certain development projects, there's usually there might be environmental impact studies that need to be done, but that's, you know, that can be really specific to a project where this main bird atlas, we're just trying to get a good pulse statewide. So there's a good opportunity to get uh, places like that um, farm completely surveyed. And this is a five-year effort, and it was previously done when, Doug? Uh, 1978 to 83 was the first atlas. So one of the the important outcomes from all this work is that you can uh, see shifting trends in populations. So, for instance, uh, where I live in Downeast, Maine, I'm seeing fewer boreal species like the boreal chickadee along the main coast um, in Washington County. I'm seeing more species like northern cardinal. So we're seeing these populations of birds are are moving somewhat. And that's just anecdotally for me. That's where the, the atlas actually can take lots of citizen science together to, to strengthen those uh, reports and really see trends in, in what's happening in main birds. Uh, so just to, you know, um, finish sort of the answer to Paul's question, I think um, Jeff was talking about really – looking more broadly at, at, at comprehensive planning. I mean, that's what com- means comprehensive plans we're supposed to do and, and looking at how fragmented development might fit into sort of broader plans um, for growth. Um, and then it sounds like there might be, I think, I believe the parcel in question is at least partially public. And so there's certainly an opportunity for you and your friends to go out and contribute to the main bird atlas and also document um, the birds that are using that habitat now because I don't think environmental site assessments, they're looking at wetland vegetation and rare and endangered species, but what about the birds that aren't rare? Um, And are there, um, so is the atlas, is it interested in specific kinds of birds? What are the birds that are common now, but maybe we should be paying attention to so um, one really nice thing about the Atlas, uh, as, as Chris mentioned, it's going to be a five-year project, and at the end of it is kind of perfectly timed with when the state, uh, IFNW, will be updating their wildlife action plan. So this is going to be one of the best updates we'll have to look at species that maybe we don't know how their populations are doing right now. Um, one that I'm really curious to see is things like American kestrels, which is the smallest falcon uh, that we have. They nest in cavities, which is kind of unique for falcons. Um if you look at the the first atlas that was done, uh, as you said, from 78 to 83, they're really widespread. They're especially around central Maine where they were, you know, in the 70s, probably a lot more open farmland. Um, the kind of classic habitat that I can think of is large open farmland with a big dead tree, you know, in the middle of the field, a perfect place for a kestrel to be nesting. Um and we're losing a lot of places like that, whether they're being reverted back to um, – 
uh, more woodlands, or unfortunately, a lot of them are being paved over in suburbia, sprawling all over. Um, Massachusetts just finished their second atlas, and some of the maps for birds, like especially American kestrel, um, every single block that they had them confirm nesting in their first atlas, every single block the population was declining when they did the second atlas. There were not a single one that they were labeled as stable. Um, I think Maine is going to be, unfortunately, pretty similar to that. And and so that's a species that I think, you know, anecdotally, we've all kind of said, yeah, it seems like there's fewer kestrels, we're losing habitat, but this is going to be, uh, you know, by the end of the project, we'll have a really clear answer to say, here's a species rapidly declining. Um, and it might be really interesting to see what some of those findings are, Um we think we know kestrels are declining. We'll probably prove it now. Um, I'll be really curious to see, like, maybe some of our most common species could also be in pretty steep decline. Um, you're listening to Coastal Conversations. We're talking about birds. Give us a call with your questions, one 625 9378 And this is Coastal Conversations, so we've been talking a lot about um, boreal forest birds and and. Um, birds that like open fields and meadows. And of course, we have those habitats on the coast, but we also have saltwater and rocky shores. Um, and I just wonder if there's particular birds, Chris, that you're keeping an eye on or that you might contribute to the bird atlas. Yeah, absolutely. So as Doug mentioned, habitat uh, change or habitat loss is, is one way that populations are, are trending in different directions. Another important one for the Gulf of Maine is climate change. And because the Gulf of Maine is warming quickly, we're seeing uh, seabird. We're seeing the forage species that seabirds rely on um, not being as abundant, such as uh, Atlantic herring, uh, sand lance. These are species that um, species such as Atlantic puffins and razorbills rely on to feed their young. And uh, sorry, I saw we had a caller coming in, and. Um, with the loss of those species, um, puffins and razorbills are looking to feed their young other prey species that they can find, like butterfish, which are too large for the, the chicks to eat. So climate change is one big uh, concern that we have for trending populations in Maine. Um, we have a call from Miley in Swans Island. Hi, Miley. Hi. are you? Yes. Okay. Uh, I have a question for the bird person. I don't need to be on the air. I just have a question. Go ahead. Whippoorwills. I live in Prospect. I have heard something I've never seen. I've never heard that bird for Whippoorwill in 40 years. Um, okay. Um, Miley, we're losing you from Swans Island. Hello. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me now? Yes. All right. I'm wondering if any of you have noticed that when you're parked and sitting in your car, have you noticed that birds come to your radiator and eat insects off of it? Um, I have not noticed that. I've certainly noticed a lot of dead insects on my car, but um, maybe Doug or Chris have seen birds actually feeding off those insects. I think I think it's very uh, cute. I, I've had uh, species like Phoebes do that. The heat of my vehicle attracts bugs, 
and then the bugs attract the flycatchers. Huh. Is that, Miley, does that sound like what you experience? Well, I'm, I'm, you were talking before about windshields killing all these insects, and I'm, you know, how many times have you driven into a, a dragonfly, and they're stuck on your radiator? Yeah. So, so the birds are coming and cleaning them up. <laughs> I've actually seen, uh, there's a photographer, uh, he's based down in, in Texas, but what he'll do is he'll actually pick bugs off of his car and put them out on perches, little yeah. perches that he's set up. So the, the birds will fly in, land on the perch that he's waiting there with his camera to take a picture of. So he gets these amazing photos of these birds with either dragonflies, butterflies, you know, in their beak. And they're all ones that he's just pulled off the front of his car. Probably <laughs> saves money awesome. on he probably saves money on bird seed too. Um, Thank th- thanks, Miley. Keep um, keep watching for those birds. So I think a previous caller might have been asking about the decline in uh, whippoorwill, and we talked about that briefly earlier. Yeah. Doug, I'm wondering if you have more thoughts on the decline of whippoorwills in in Maine. Um, one thing I've heard is that they're uh, one of their main food sources, the large uh, silk moths, um, which are some of the, the large, most beautiful moths that we have around, that their populations are really in decline. And that's probably one of the big factors. Um, I've got the the recording here of Eastern Whippoorwill. If, if people don't know it, this might at least, uh, uh, you'll, you'll see how it gets the name. That sounds kind of... That onomatopoeia, it sounds like it's saying its name, that nice whippoorwill. Um, uh, really a, a stunning-looking bird. They've got these these massive eyes, and when you see them just sitting on the ground, they've got these these tiny little beaks, but actually the, the corner of their mouths extend way back. Um, so when they fly around, they'll, uh, they'll, their mouth is basically like this giant glove um, so that they can catch these uh, uh, insects and these big moths while they're flying around on the wing. But it's more likely that you would hear one, right, at night than see one? Right. So it's usually uh, shortly after sunset. Um, uh, two weeks ago, we were up here at a, a Great Pond Mountain um, walking through. There's uh, common nighthawks in there, um, which have this amazing... Uh, this, this little like painting noise. I'll play it, and then one thing they'll do is they'll, they'll essentially clap their wings and make this loud booming. So here's the painting, and that's this compression that they'll they'll do that booming noise. Um, um, so it's interesting talking about. Um, Sort of monitoring, I do want listeners to know that um, June was probably not the best time to do a show about birds because a lot of our um, biologists and ornithologists are actually out in the field. So um, U.S. Fisheries and Wildlife, um, Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife um, are a lot of those staff biologists who are participating in the bird atlas um, who we invited to join us could not be here today because they were actually out studying birds. Um, I wonder just... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hard time of year to get birders, but it's an easy time to get birds. Yes, yes. Um, Are there other besides... So the bird atlas sounds pretty easy. We'll put the... the, you know, the URL for that um, up on the web. What else, you know, what are other ways for people to get involved and sort of get into birds? 
Yeah, um, you know, citizen science projects like uh, the Atlas, which I'll just say it's main.gov slash bird atlas um, for any listeners that want to look it up right away. Um, uh, honestly, I, I just want to encourage people to start uh, paying attention, um, whether it's just watching in your, your backyards to, you know, what birds are coming into feeders, um, what you see while you're out on the coast. Um now is a great time of year to be looking for common eiders um, with their little, their fluffy little chicks, which are absolutely adorable. Um, if you want to, you know, give back, you can report that you saw those little downy chicks to the atlas and and help us, you know, fill in that that breeding map. Um, and one thing, you know, I always think uh, uh, to quote. Uh, as a kid, I, I loved the book The Lorax, and there's the famous quote from it that unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing will get better. Uh, it will not. Um, sorry, I had to get the rhyme in there. Um, and I think, you know, birds are something that we all have that we can appreciate, um, even, you know, non-bird watchers, non-birders. Um, you know, there's it's such a great uh, kind of group of animals that we can all observe, like whether you just step outside and listen whether you see them flying around um and we really need them they they uh really do a lot to contribute to you know our overall ecosystem so you know it's through these projects that we can all kind of give back to them if we all care a little bit chris i remember you saying years ago you're talking about birding and how you know you can't necessarily go backpacking for a week or you know it's it's harder to get out and sort of do some of those more adventurous things maybe we did when we were younger but birding is something that you can do anywhere so wherever you went you you were able to do birding can you i just that has always sort of stuck with me that it's this great way to pay attention and connect with nature um from wherever you are that's absolutely right you can do it anywhere and there's no closed season so um I've taken advantage of that fully. Uh, you'll see me with binoculars around my neck uh, with every chance I get during a break at a meeting or if I'm traveling with my family. Of course, with my family, we have to decide before we start uh, an adventure if it's going to include birding because that <laughs> slows down the pace a bit. If we're you know, doing an enjoyable family hike, I might have to leave binoculars behind. Um, but that's all part of it. I wanted to just... Um, mentioned about other opportunities for folks to get involved. So in this area, uh, Maine Audubon has two local chapters, Down East Audubon uh, chapter and the Fundy Audubon chapter, and they have they host walks and lectures uh, that folks can participate in. And one of the best ways that I learn is by being around other knowledgeable people and in interacting. So I became a better birder quickly because of the people that uh, showed me what they knew. And so going to uh, organized uh, events like this really helped me uh, come up to speed more, uh, much faster at, at birding. And so I would check into those, those local chapters events. Um, and from the main Audubon perspective, uh, Doug, you've got a couple of events coming up this summer as well. Yeah, it seems to never uh, never slow down anymore. Um, we've got everything from puffin cruises coming up. We've got a, a boat trip that I'll actually be doing with Chris out of um, Eastport, where we'll go into Head Harbor Passage, looking for a lot of the um, unusual birds or, or large quantity of, of birds that uh, take take advantage of the large resources there. Um, and I'll I'll just add to what Chris was saying, and it seems like there's just 
increasingly uh, more and more opportunities for people to um, uh, get involved, and whether it's with one of um, Maine Audubon's chapters that are pretty extensive along the state. Um, there's also several bird clubs, the uh, Aroostook Bird Club, the uh, uh, Stanton Bird Club, um, Augusta. Uh, there's It's kind of amazing how many keep popping up. The uh, Maine Young Birders Club was just started, um, I guess, last year by a uh, couple people in, in southern Maine, but they're trying to really make it a, a statewide uh, group. Um, well, thanks. Um, we've come to the end of our coastal conversation today about the world of Maine birds. I'd like to thank our guests for their time and good work. Um, Doug, Doug Hitchcocks from Maine Audubon, Chris Bartlett, Jeff Wells for calling in. Thanks to Natalie Springle, your regular host for this show, and of course, all the listeners who spent time with us today. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned to On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Catherine Schmidt, your host today of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning and a wonderful summer filled with birdsong. song.